Good morning. It's this thing this thing is on. Yeah, Jeff's got me unmuted back there. So he said I was on right here on my hip, but he'd mute it back there, which you probably wanted it muted during the singing, so and I have been told numerous times that I don't even need a microphone, but uh still I guess for the people over the web it might be helpful if they could actually hear what was going on. But Alan actually gave a little bit of the introduction there already for those, obviously the people of community, I know the people that actually go to community, I've spoke here before, but for those of you who came in for the conference, you don't know me, but I've already met Philip Stansel, I think from Milledgeville, Georgia, some down around, and a few others, but uh, yeah, Alan sort of stole a little bit of the thunder. We met when I was probably in high school, or right getting out of high school, when I came back off the mission field at Grace, and we played a little slow-pitch softball together, and then we moved to Florida in the 85, and uh, then we moved back home in 95, and that's when we started, we hooked up with our, because we're both Hoosiers, by the way, also. So don't hold that against me. I grew up in Indiana, moved to Chattanooga when I was 14, but anybody I went to high school with still calls me a Yankee, even though I've been in the South for 40 years now. They, uh, they won't let it go. So, yeah, but I'm a Hoosier by birth, and Alan and Janet are both Hoosiers, so I don't know if that's what our initial friendship came from, but as soon as we moved back, we started meeting on Wednesday nights, praying together. And like Alan said, I'll go ahead and elaborate on that, since you give a little of my history. Obviously, I, uh, my parents were believers, and I don't remember the first time I you know, was in church or whatever, and then I came to uh, Chattanooga and went to Temple High School, and then went to Temple College, played basketball, and was being trained as a preacher. Of course, my whole life, all of us were supposed to be preachers, right? Messengers, all believers, but... I've actually taught Sunday school and all, but I've been uh, a salesman for most of my working career. But uh, anyway, I just uh, had a lot of problems with the Hebrew passages, basically, is what God used to uh, bring me to the kingdom truths. So took Hebrews courses in college and read so many different guys' writings on Hebrews and could never rectify what they were saying about the warning passages in Hebrews and that professor, possessor stuff, and, and all that, because I knew from reading the warning passages is that there's a loss that suffered, okay? <laughs> I didn't accept the Armenian viewpoint, obviously, as you lose your salvation completely, your spirit salvation, but I didn't buy into that Calvinistic viewpoint either, because those peoples were just professors. They didn't really possess salvation, because that's not in the text. So that's what we were discussing that one night years ago, I guess in 96, 96, after we'd prayed together, and we just always had had biblical discussions, and uh, I said, boy, I wish somebody would explain the Hebrews warning passages better, because I still hadn't ever, and then that's when he, I guess the next Wednesday night, he brought the reign of the servant kings, and that allowed a light bulb to come on in my head at neither the Arminian viewpoint nor the Calvinistic viewpoint were correct, even though those were the two accepted schools of thought for centuries. So, and anyway, then I just started, started studying, and uh, I couldn't get enough of the uh, kingdom truths, basically. So these last, what is it, 18 years now? <laughs> That's basically been... Uh, but I appreciate the opportunity to come here. Uh, Hebrews ten twenty five. That's not going to be the passage. And if you get if you those uh, from community that have heard me speak before, we don't really sit in one like one passage, you know. <laughs> so we'll be uh, all over uh, the Word of God. But Hebrews ten twenty five, not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that's what we're doing here today, right? Now, a lot of churches will put that up on their sign, you know, because they want to, 
I guess, shame the congregation into being there Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, you know, three to thrive kind of a thing. But technically, that passage is talking about a group of like-minded believers like ourselves not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together for what purpose? It says, to encourage one another, right? In the kingdom truths. And then the last phrase says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is he speaking of? Yeah, the Lord's day, right? What's going to happen to the church before, before that? We get raptured out of here. And what starts with the church of God? Judgment begins at the house of God, right? So after we're raptured out of here, we'll stand before him in judgment. So if that day is drawing near, which it is, then our reckoning is also drawing near. And that's why we should assemble together like this and encourage one another, right? I'm a pre-trib, rapturous, right? What's the tribulation for? Whose judgment? Dale, Israel's, the Jews. Okay? That's what, remember, judgment begins at the house of God. So we'll raptured, and all of us will stand before Jesus Christ in judgment, right? Which all future judgments are based on works, as Philip and I were talking about before, before uh, we started here this morning. All future judgments based on your works. And it's either black or white from what I read in the scriptures, right? It's not an awards banquet. It's not an awards banquet is what the church has tried to make it out to be now. Somebody gets a blue ribbon, somebody gets a red one, right? What I see in the scriptures is you either determined to be an overcomer or you're determined to have been overcome by Satan, right? That's set forth in the type. Remember when the Israelites, right, got to the earthly kingdom, or earthly promised land, what did they do first before they went in? Sent in 12 spies, or 12 guys to search out the land. They did it for 40 days, which is a complete period of time, right? 40, the number 40. And they searched the complete land. Then they had to come back and give a report, Right? And uh, the report started out good. But then 10 of them said, man, the people in this land, we can't do this. Unbelief crept in. And then the evil report they gave stirred the whole people up. So they all fell away. Because where did they want to go then? Back to the world. Back to Egypt. Except for Caleb and Joshua. So in that instance, in the type, Caleb and Joshua overcame, right? The other ten, along with the rest of the people, were overcome because of their unbelief. There wasn't any middle ground. So that was set forth in the type, and the antitype has to follow the type in exact detail, right? So at the judgment seat of Christ, we stand, stand before him in judgment, you're either an overcomer or you've been overcome. There's no middle ground. But that's why we gather together. But as my topic, as I emailed Alan back a week or a week and a half ago, we're today and tomorrow probably because we probably won't get it all in today. We're going to talk about the five books of Moses in the Old Testament and how they parallel the five books of John in the New Testament. Right, so what do we call the five books of Moses in the Old Testament? The Torah or the Pentateuch, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What are the five books of John in the New Testament? 
Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. So you have five books that Moses penned. Of course, we know the author of the scriptures is ultimately God. But we have the five books of Moses that, that he penned in the Old Testament, we refer to as the Pentateuch, and then the five books of John that he penned in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. So we'll see, first of all, that Genesis and John parallel one another. They, they parallel one another. So when you're studying Scripture, whether you're in the Old Testament or New Testament, ultimately you're studying about Jesus the Christ, whom God appointed heir of all things, Hebrews 1, 2. Right? So that means if you're in the Old Testament or New Testament, you're studying about Jesus Christ. Turn to Luke 24. Luke 24. Familiar passage. You got two disciples on the road to where? Emmaus in Luke 24. And we'll just jump down to the 20-something verse. Pick it up. Luke 24. <clears throat> Jesus had just been resurrected, right? And these two disciples were walking to Emmaus. And Jesus comes up and says, uh, well, we'll just jump down to 25 because they, they obviously didn't know who he was at first. And he said to them, verse 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning who? Himself in all the scriptures. Well, all the scriptures they had at that time was the Old Testament. That's what he was calling Moses and all the prophets. So Jesus went to the Old Testament with these two disciples on the Emmaus Road and taught them about himself from the Old Testament. Furthermore, the Word became flesh in John, it says, right? When the Word became flesh, which we call his incarnation, all the Old Testament books had been penned at that time, right? Right? Had any of the New Testament been penned? Not a word. So at Jesus Christ's incarnation, when the Word became flesh, God became flesh in the person of His Son, He would have been incomplete if there was anything that's in the New Testament that wasn't first already in the Old Testament. Right? Because the written word and the living word are one and the same. They're inseparable. So there's nothing in the new that wasn't first already in the Old Testament. It's one complete revelation. And all the New Testament is just a further opening up and explanation of what was first already in the Old Testament. So the Word became flesh in John 1. So that's why you start in the Old Testament. Start where it began in Genesis. You got to lay the foundation first. We had another friends that we used to both go to Grace with that I coached some over there when all my kids were at Grace Academy. And his first wife passed away from... Uh, breast cancer years ago. He remarried a lady who had been, uh, became a believer out of the uh, Roman Catholicism uh, when she was out in Oklahoma, and then she moved here, and they, John and her met after his, Nancy had passed away. They ended up getting married, and so Dr. Oyler, I, 
with uh, certain Sunday nights before they had the service, or especially on when they were going to have communion, he'd have a couple in the church get up and give their testimony. So Lo was giving her testimony about how she got saved out of Catholicism, and it was a friend of hers that started asking her to come to church with her because she didn't really even go to Mass, but she was a Roman Catholic. But uh, she didn't even go to Mass, but a friend of hers started asking her to come to church and she got saved, and so then they gave her a Bible and told her she needs to start reading. So then she said it was like two or three weeks later, she met this friend for coffee, and she goes, you've been reading your Bible? And she goes, yes. Yeah. She goes, where'd you start? She goes, started at the beginning like any book in Genesis. And the girl that had been a believer for years goes, oh, no, 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 don't do that. She goes, well, you won't understand that. That's too hard. She goes, you need to just start with the Gospel of John. What book would you pick up and you'd start in the, in the last part of it? Read the conclusion before you ever read the first chapter. But see, that's what an experienced believer told a new, newborn believer. Oh, don't start reading in Genesis. You won't be able to make heads or tails of that. Just get you a Gospel of John and read it. Well, you can't understand John unless you've read Genesis, unless you understand Genesis, unless you come to a proper understanding of the first 34 verses of Scripture. You can study the rest of it till you're blue in the face and you can't fit it all together because you haven't laid the foundation. Those first 34 verses of Scripture. Dale Barkybine is a missionary to the Philippines, but he's a contractor by trade, like I'm a salesman for my career. So when I was teaching over at Sunday school, I brought up that point, and I asked Dale, I said, well, what, you could build an elaborate, beautiful building, but if you hadn't laid the proper foundation, what's going to happen to it eventually? It'll fall down. It'll collapse. So all your studying that you do in the New Testament, I, yeah, I've driven by churches before, and such and such Baptist church is a New Testament church. Well, what does that mean? You don't study the Old Testament? <laughs> you can study John back and forward, and you, you can glean stuff out of it, but you don't come to an understanding of John unless you understand Genesis. Remember, we're supposed to compare spiritual things with spiritual, Scripture with Scripture under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He's our teacher. But you guys compare Scripture with Scripture. So you got to lay the foundation first before you build the building. So we're going to see how Genesis and John parallel one another, and then Exodus and Revelation, that's why Exodus sometimes called the apocalypse of the Old Testament, right? And then Leviticus in 1 John, Numbers in 2 John, and Deuteronomy in 3 John. The five books of Moses parallel the five books of John in the New Testament. So Genesis and John. You start in Genesis, and you see see I'm already to the third page. You guys were worried that we wouldn't get done before lunch. <clears throat> you start in Genesis and John, and really John isn't placed in its proper place in the Gospels. Just remember, the verse divisions and chapters divisions and the arrangements of the books aren't, isn't inspired. <laughs> and John, through the years, has taken different places in the Gospels, which has raised some confusion. But actually, Genesis, which starts the Old Testament, right? And John, which should start the New Testament, both start off the same way. That's how they parallel one another. Okay, Genesis starts off with, 
in beginning, in the beginning in your English translations, but there is no article there in the Hebrew. And John 1 starts off in beginning. No article in the Greek either. But because of the late date that some theologians have given John in the past of like 90 A.D., which couldn't really be because John's subject matter is, what is, what is the book of John? Who is that written to? The Jews, right? God chose how many signs to point out to him? Seven or eight, if you include Jesus Christ's resurrection himself. Seven signs that Jesus actually performed before his crucifixion, and then the eighth sign would be his resurrection. But they were written to the Jews. Who requires a sign? 1 Corinthians one twenty-two. Israel does. So God chose those eight signs in the book of John, and he expressly gives you the purpose in chapter 20. Right? Turn to John chapter 20. Verse 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, those eight signs, have been written so that you, who? The Jews, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life, and that Greek word there is Zoe life, Zoe life in his name. And Zoe life is the type of life that God wants us to experience in the Messianic kingdom. Zoe life. Remember when he came the first time, he came to people who had been sacrificing as they were supposed to for centuries. See, that's another misnomer that he came to an unbelieving people. The Jews weren't unregenerate. They didn't believe as they should have. Obviously, they'd been that cycle of unbelief through the whole Old Testament, right? But they weren't an unregenerate people. They'd been sacrificing the sacrifices as they were supposed to, right? He came to them, it says in Matthew, offering them the kingdom of the heavens, okay? The heavenly sphere of the kingdom, and it's articular and it's plural in every case that it's mentioned in Matthew. Even though the English translations will say kingdom of heaven or what it's uh, every time in Matthew it's the kingdom of the heavens plural. It's articular and it's plural in every case. He came to the Jews offering them the heavenly sphere of the kingdom. They already had the earthly sphere, right? <laughs> God set up the theocracy in the Old Testament. Now, it never rose to what it was supposed to be because of their unbelief, their continued unbelief. But he came to them in the first time offering the Jews the kingdom of the heavens. Of course, they rejected it. So then he turned and offered that same offer to whom? The church. I'm going to take this message to a nation who will bear the fruits. Right? The one new man in Christ. So that's what our call is, is to walk worthy of our calling and be an overcomer. All right? And be able to be a joint heir with Christ, rule and reign with him in the coming kingdom in that seventh day. So that's the purpose of the book of John. It was written to them so that they might believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and in believing they may have kingdom life, Zoe life in his name. So at the beginning of Genesis, we already said that it starts off the same way as John but what you see in the opening two chapters of Genesis, and of course we can't dive in there and read through all that and then read through John and go to Exodus. But we'll hit the highlights and then 
all of us should go home as the Bereans did, right? Remember in Acts it said the Bereans were more nobler than those in Thessalonica because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if those things were so. What things? The things Paul had just taught them. Right? Don't just take Jeff's word for it. Don't take Brother Allen's word for it. Right? And that search, the term search the scriptures daily in the Greek comes from the same Greek word as when Jesus looked upon Peter. Remember when he denied him three times in the passage in the Gospels? He said when Jesus was walking out, he looked over and he gazed right at Peter. What did it do to Peter? Cut him to the quick. And he went out and wept bitterly. Right? So that searching the scriptures isn't getting up and reading, you know, your however many, you know, verses you gotta do to read through the Bible in a year or whatever, which I'm not against any of those programs, don't get me wrong. They have it going on over at Grace Baptist every year. They hand out chronological Bibles or read through the Bible in a year copies, and the, and the pastor wants everybody to get together, and, and he meets with different groups of small groups of men and checks on their Bible readings and all. But when I was 14 or 15, I started memorizing scriptures at the urging of uh, some teachers, and I memorized the whole chapter 8 of Romans and can get up at a pulpit at 15 and spit the whole Romans 8. I had no clue what it meant, right? I mean, I could just wrote, from rote memorization, I could just get up and just spit out all the verses, but I had no clue what Romans 8 was talking about because I hadn't studied it, right? I hadn't searched the scriptures, I was just doing something to get a ribbon in the youth group or something. I don't know. Right? So that searching the scriptures the brands are doing, that's the same root Greek, Greek root word as Jesus gazing upon Peter, looking right through him. And that's the only way you know, that you can get your daily sustenance is getting in the Word of God, right? From a physical standpoint, and I've said this in Sunday school class before, from a physical standpoint, you have to eat a certain diet, right? Or eat, you got to eat food to get your physical nourishment. Well, to get your spiritual nourishment, you got to eat food, right? You have to eat food. And Jeff, on the physical standpoint, I can't eat a diet for Dale Barkybine. Not that he would want me to, right? Okay. I can't eat for Dale, right, in a physical standpoint. Same thing on the spiritual side. I, Jeff can't eat for Alan Robinson. And Dale Barkybine can't eat spiritually for Jeff Smith. Each one of us of our own accord has to get in this book on a daily basis and eat of it. You have to do it yourself. And I love coming. I love I've always listen, love listening to Alan teach when you know we went to the Sunday school class over there, and and I've heard Royce Powell. Love to hear Royce Powell speak. Heard Arlen Chitwood. But just going to conferences and listening to guys speak or teach the word is good, but that doesn't give you your daily sustenance. You have to get in the word on a daily basis and ingest it. But Genesis starts off in the opening two chapters, and we see a creation at a beginning point, right? In chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to show how Genesis and John parallel one another. 
Secondly, you see a subsequent ruin of that creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2a. Then you see a restoration of the ruined creation, the material creation, through divine intervention over six days of time in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2b through 25. Then you see man created on the sixth day, following all God's restorative work for a revealed purpose having to do with the seventh day. Okay? Man's number six, he was created on the sixth day, but he was created for a revealed purpose, which we see in Genesis, which had to do with the seventh day. Okay? And you see that in chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. Then you see God resting on the seventh day, following all his work, and that's chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So there you have the first 34 verses of Scripture, right? Right there, which we said is the foundation for all the rest of the Scriptures. So you got to lay the foundation first before you start building on it. So we'll just go, we can read those first 34 verses, and then we'll go to John and show the parallel, and we won't have time to stop and do a lot, but we'll see creation at a beginning point, John 1, 1, in beginning God created the heavens and the earth, okay? Some point in time past, eons ago, <laughs> says in Psalms, God literally just spoke the ages into existence and all they contain, the stars, the planets, everything, just spoken into existence. John, uh, Genesis 1, 2a, the earth became formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. But 2a, it says, the earth became formless and void. At what point in time did that occur, if you look at other, if you compare Scripture with Scripture? Eons ago, God just spoke the ages into existence, and then at a point in time, it said the earth became formless and void. What happened? Who was the original ruler over this part of God's kingdom. Lucifer, remember he was the messianic angel who had several, however many number God required, subordinate angels underneath him ruling over the earth. And you see from Job, right, the book of Job and other passages, there's other messianic angels over other parts of God's universe or kingdom, and they have subordinate angels under them. That's just God's government, okay, as set up in the beginning. And at some point in time, what did Lucifer do? He said, man, rolling over this earth, this, this didn't cutting it for me, right? What did he want to do? He wanted to rule over the whole shooting shebang. He wanted to become like the most high. So he sought to exalt himself. So then he was disqualified to rule. And that part of God's kingdom that he was ruling over was put into a state of ruin. The earth became formless and void. How did God do that? We see that in Second Peter. How the earth become formless and void? Well, let's go on in, in Genesis. What happens in the following verses in Genesis when we talk about the restoration? It said, And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the what? Waters. So how did he put the earth in a state of ruin when Lucifer fell? 
Excuse me. He flooded it. See, the Noachian flood wasn't the first time God flooded the whole earth. See, remember, if you read on about the restoration, it said he separated the waters from the waters. Remember? Then he gathered the waters that remained on the earth in together and called them seas. But when Lucifer fell, the earth became formless and void because God flooded it. So I was talking with Philip before we got started this morning. And we've talked about this in our Sunday school class. I'm not a young earth theorist. The earth is not just 6,000 years old. All right? And because I think the earth is, could be millions, yea, billions of years old, doesn't mean I agree, agree with evolution. But see, because the evolutionists take that theory, of course, they take God completely out of the picture. They say we, we were a little amoeba that came crawling out of some mud and slime somewhere. I actually had an eighth-grade football coach who was my science teacher, and he called himself a theistic evolutionist. Taught Sunday school at the New Bethel Baptist Church, but in the science class, he said he believed God created all the stuff in the beginning, the amoebas or whatever. He didn't believe in the Big Bang thing. But then he just sort of sat back and just let it take its course. He called himself a theistic evolutionist. Threw God in there, you know. Threw God in there at the beginning. But then, you know, God, all he did just create all the soup and the stuff, and then he just sat back and let it, let it work. But see, remember, the earth, God spoke the ages into existence and all they contained, the planets, the earth, all the other planets, the stars, aeons ago. Man's a latecomer in God's plans, right? So I don't have any problem with them finding a prehistoric dinosaur, sor, uh, dinosaur skeleton somewhere. Does that prove evolution? No, it just proved that dinosaurs roamed the earth. When? Before man ever came around. <laughs> All right? Also says in Isaiah and Jeremiah that earth, when God created the earth originally, he created it to be inhabited. He did not create it formless and void at the start. So the dinosaurs and those that roamed the earth when Satan and his angels ruled over, then Satan fell. Earth was put in a state of ruin by a flood, and there's where all your dinosaurs went. All right, and then about 6,000 years ago, you see what happened in Genesis 2a and beyond. God came in and restored a ruined creation. And you see right there in the type in the first few verses of Genesis, you see the, the complete trinity. See that in verse 2? The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So you have the Holy Spirit. And then what does it say in verse 3? Then God said, God spoke and said, Let there be light. And there was light. And who is the light? Jesus Christ. All right? So right there in the first two verses of Genesis, you see the Godhead at work. The Spirit the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. And that's how redemption occurs. There's also what we call a, you know, if God says it at the first, a pattern is set, right? And God is perfect, correct? So in any time redemption occurs, like in my life, it occurs the same way. The Spirit moved, right? The Spirit's the one that woos us, correct? God spoke, and light came into existence. 
Now, it happens instantaneously, instantaneously when I, Acts 16, 31, right? Believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Okay? But it happens the same way because the pattern was set right there. That's how a ruined creation is redeemed. The Spirit moves, God speaks, and light comes into existence where only darkness was. And then what did he do? God separated the light from the darkness, correct? There's a separation made. And is there anything good said about the darkness in Genesis? Nope. So you see him start his restoration, which takes place over six days of time, and then God, man's created on the sixth day for a revealed purpose. So turn to John 1, 20, uh, Genesis 1, chapter, uh, verse 26 and 20 through 28. We can read 27. Man was created on the sixth day for a revealed purpose, which had to do with the seventh day. Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. Or if you're in the King James, it says, Let them have dominion. The Hebrew word there is rada, R-A-D-A-H, which also in Psalms is translated rule. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the creeping, uh, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he states it twice there, verse 26 and verse 28. Man was created to rule in whose place? Satan. Lucifer was the original messianic angel that God set up over the earth, this part of his kingdom that he ruled over with his subordinate angels. He fell. He was disqualified. Then for, we don't know, an indeterminate amount of time that God doesn't choose to disclose to us, the earth laid in a state of ruin. He doesn't tell us how long it was like that. Then God restored a ruined creation so man could live on the earth, and he was brought in to rule in the stead of Satan. And it said, male and female, he created him, created them, excuse me. Where was Eve when God created Adam, formed Adam? He was inside, she was inside of him, Right? So at the proper time, obviously, God put Adam to sleep, opened up his side, took out the rib, and the Hebrew, he fashioned or built Eve from the rib out of Adam and then gave her back to him right, to complete him. So what's set up there is man is created to rule but he has to have a consort queen, a wife, to rule, right? So that's the type that's set there in Genesis also. So in the antitype, who is ultimately going to rule? We just said that, Hebrews 1, 2. Who did God appoint heir of all things? Jesus Christ. So what does he have to have to rule in the coming kingdom? A bride. Set up that way in Genesis. And the bride will be revealed at the judgment seat. 
And just like with the first Adam, a bride came from a part of his body, right? Then with the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ, his bride will come from a part of his body. All the church will be raptured and stand before Jesus Christ in judgment, but will all the church be determined to be, or all believers be determined to be overcomers? No, obviously. See that in the first few chapters of Revelation. Right? So the type is set in Genesis, and the antitype has to follow the type in exact detail. So since the first Adam's wife came from a part of his body after his side was opened and a rib was removed, the second Adam, Jesus Christ's wife or bride, will come from a part of his body. Only a part of the all believers will be determined to be overcomers because only a part of the believers will have actually walked worthy of their calling. See, your calling and election has more to do with your soul salvation, right? All believers have a call. What are you called to? Be an overcomer, to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. But all of us won't attain unto that calling, just like all the Israelites were called out of Egypt to go where? To the promised land. They all were baptized in the sea and all came up on the other shores, right? And they were headed to the promised land, the earthly kingdom. Did all of them attain to their inheritance? No, because of their unbelief. So on the antitype with Christian's life, we all have a calling. We're called out of the world, which Egypt always typifies the world in Scripture. We're called out of the world to go to our heavenly kingdom. Remember Abraham? What was Abraham looking for? Say so he's looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. So I don't think a lot of new theologians these days give the patriarchs in the Old Testament enough credit. Have you ever heard the term progressive revelation? Well, it might be progressive revelation as far as what we're reading in the book, but because, you know, I think Abraham, why did, uh, why did Cain and Abel start sacrificing? Remember it said in the course of time they both brought a sacrifice. Why did they do that? They just felt like it? Huh? Who told them to start a sacrifice? God did. God used to walk and talk with Adam. Okay? How did Abraham know to look for a city whose builder and maker is God? You think the patriarchs didn't know what was coming? Think about Daniel, right? Just because God didn't put it in this fashion in his book where it just laid right out for you, and I told Moses this and this and this and this, and I I told Adam this, I told Abraham all this and this and this, doesn't mean it's not here. We have to get in this book compare spiritual things with spiritual, Scripture with Scripture under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and you can understand the Word of God. I think the patriarchs were a whole lot smarter than we want to, knew a whole lot more about what was coming down the pike than we give them credit for. So then we were, man was created on the sixth day for a revealed purpose, which we just stated, which has to do with the seventh day. 
like anybody that seeks rulership nowadays, who are they ruling under in this earthly realm? Satan. Remember, Satan's been disqualified, but he's still ruling. Remember, that's the type set up with Saul and David in the Old Testament. Remember, Samuel went and told Saul he was disqualified that he immediately stopped ruling and David took the throne? No. He was disqualified, but he kept ruling until that time when David was ready to take the throne. Same thing, Satan was disqualified eons ago. Then man was brought on the scene. Do you think he knew that, what man was brought on the scene for? So what did he do? Went in there and deceived. He's the great deceiver, right? So then man fell and was disqualified. But what was in the place for man that's not in the place for angels? Redemption. See, this whole book is a book of redemption. And we said it was stated right there in the first few verses of Genesis. How, some, some, how redemption occurs. Of course, originally, Adam and Eve, what did they try to do? Tried to cover their sin, right? With what? Fig leaves. Was God satisfied with that? So what did God do? Right. Covered it with skins, which inherently suggests that there was a death that occurred, a sacrificial death, a shedding of blood, because without the shedding of blood, there is no Remission of sins. So they sinned and fell and tried to cover themselves with leaves. And God wasn't satisfied with that, so there was a sacrifice occurred. Blood was shed, and he covered them with animal skins. So turn to John after you see that, and we'll see how John starts off just like Genesis, and John should be the first book of the New Testament. And really then, you'd have John, and then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then Acts. And Luke penned both Luke and the book of Acts, right? And they should really go together, just like John should be at the start of the Gospels, not at the end. Because at the end of Luke, there we read the, you know, on the Emmaus Road, but at the 24th chapter of Luke, he introduced you know, the ascension of Jesus Christ. Then what's it start off with in Acts? Same thing, right? So if John had its rightful place at the beginning of the New Testament, it would be John, then Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. And then Acts would follow Luke. And Luke penned Acts, and he ends his gospel and begins Acts in the same, with the same subject matter and then continues on through the book of Acts. Because the gospels are the offer of the kingdom of the heavens to the Jews. The book of Acts is a transitional book before the epistles. It's the re-offer of the kingdom of the heaven to the nation of Israel. And what did they do again? Rejected it. <laughs> And it was a terminal point at the end when Paul said, okay, I'm leaving you guys because you're not going to accept this message and I'm going to take it to someone who will. All right. Book of John. <clears throat> Just like Genesis, in beginning, in the Greek there's no article there, in beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Of course, who'd we say was the light in Genesis? Jesus Christ. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. 
There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came into his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 14. So, book of John, opening two chapters, we see the same thing. We see a creation at a beginning point, John 1, 1 through 3, right? Then we see a subsequent ruin of the creation, John 1, 4, and 5. Then we see a restoration of the ruined creation, which is ruined man, not the material creation. This time it's ruined man through divine intervention again over six days' time in John. Then we see man seen as redeemed at the end of the six days, following all of God's restorative work for a revealed purpose having to do with the seventh day. And then in five, again, we see God resting on the seventh day, following all of his work, chapter 2, verses 2 through 11. You say, Jeff, where do you see six days, or a septenary arrangement, actually seven days? And septenary is just a big word having to do or dealing with the number seven or sevens. Obviously, you see the seven days in Genesis, right? You say, where do you see seven days in John 1? Well, if you go to verse 29 of John 1, it says, what starts that verse? Anybody? The next day. So, obviously, if it says the next day, you're sitting on the second day then, correct? Then if you go to verse 35, what does that start with again? Again, the next day. So now what day are we on? The third day. Then go to verse 43. What does it say? The next day. So now what day are we on? Fourth day. I know it's boring on Monday morning to do math, especially if you're out of school. But anyway, we're on the fourth day. Then if you go to chapter 2, verse 1, what does that say? On the third day there was a wedding. So if you were on the fourth day and you got three days more, what day you end up on? The seventh day. And where were they on the seventh day? There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. What occurred at this wedding? Jesus Christ performed his first miracles, what we commonly hear him referred to. It was his first sign that's mentioned in the book of Gospel of John. And what did he do? He turned the water into wine. How many water pots did he have? Six. Whose number is six? Man's number. So that's where in in part three of John's opening two chapters, you see a restoration of the ruined creation, ruined man through divine intervention over six days of time. And if you look at most of the other signs that, that are pointed out in the Gospel of John, what day of the week did they occur on? The Sabbath day, right? The seventh day. And what were those pretending or what were those supposed to point out as signs to the nation of Israel, to the Jews? What did he do on those different signs? What was he doing? Healing. What was another sign that he performed? The feeding, right? So what those signs were supposed to point out to the Jews is in their unbelief, see, they were sick. Remember what Isaiah said? Remember? They were sick from the head of their, top of their head to the sole of their foot. They were wounded, right? Who wounded them? 
God did. So who could heal him? God could. And they could be healed or be fed from the bread of life and have that type of life, it said in John 20, 30, and 31, remember, Zoe life on the seventh day. If they would go from unbelief to belief. But when is that going to occur? The end of the tribulation at the second coming of Jesus Christ. I can see Dale. Right? They're going to look on the one whom they have pierced, and a nation will be born instantly. Right? Which has to occur before they go into the seventh, you know, to the into the kingdom. Because what what occurred before they left Egypt? Which one of the Jewish festivals occurred before they left Egypt? The first one, obviously. I'm sorry. Passover, right? So in the type in Egypt, the Passover occurred before they left Egypt and went to the promised land. So in the antitype, the Passover feast, when they look on the one whom they've pierced and the nation's born in a day, has to occur before they go into the kingdom, the seventh day. The antitype will always follow the type in exact detail. Who's the author of all the types? God. So there's a professor at Temple years ago that taught some types and whatever, but he said if you keep going through the types, they eventually break down. I'm like, well, how would they? The author of the types, God himself, who's omniscient, right, omnipresent, he's perfect, he authored the types. How do the types ever break down? That's how God chose to pen this book, right? As a septenary arrangement, dealing with sevens. So from Genesis, everything points to the seventh day, the kingdom. That time when Jesus Christ, whom God has appointed heir of all things, will come into his glory and receive his inheritance on the seventh day. So I've heard, and there's not too many prophecy preachers around anymore. You don't hear a lot of prophecy conferences, but, but uh, I did hear a guy that years ago who said two-thirds of this book is prophetic, so he didn't know why there weren't more pastors and all teaching prophecy. Well, I beg to differ. I say this whole book is prophetic because from the first chapter of Genesis, it all points to the seventh day. Hebrews 1, 2, when Jesus Christ, whom God has appointed heir of all things, will enter into his glory and receive his inheritance. So, obviously, that's another deception of Satan that you don't hear a lot of prophecy teaching anymore. But most of the church doesn't want to think about how near we are to that day, as it said in Hebrews ten twenty five, Right? Because we got our own agenda. Okay? I need some more grandchildren, you know, God, so you can't rapture us out of here now. Right? <clears throat> we got our own little thing going on. The church has our own little thing going on, and boy, that'd be an interruption. God, boom, rapture. And interrupt what I got going on, Lord. What he has planned for us out there, the greatest thing ever conceived for man. So you see that Genesis and John 
go together. They parallel one another. <laughs> You'd have both Testaments starting off the same way if John was in its proper place. And also, you'd have, if, like I said earlier, if you had John starting the New Testament and you had Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, then you'd have those five books sort of forming a Pentateuch in the New Testament, right? You'd have a Pentateuch starting the Old Testament and a Pentateuch starting the New Testament because the Gospels all are about the offer of the kingdom of the heavens to Israel, and then the book of Acts is a reoffer of the kingdom of heaven to the book of Israel. I mean, to the people of Israel. And once again, there's nothing in the New that wasn't first already in the Old Testament. And all the New is is an opening up and unveiling of what was already in the Old Testament. Genesis and John. Then we'll start tomorrow, (laughs) Exodus and Revelation, and then we'll see about getting into Numbers and First John, and I mean Leviticus and First John, Numbers and Second John, Deuteronomy and Third John. But Genesis and John, Exodus and Revelation, and once again we can all do our own study. Leviticus and First John, Numbers and Second John, and Deuteronomy and Third John. Five books of Moses parallel the five books of John in the New Testament. And we'll take up Exodus and Revelation tomorrow.